We've been working through the Gospel of Mark since January. In light of the brevity of the Gospel, in light of how often Mark moves us along using this word immediately, 40 times in the, book of, in the Gospel of Mark alone, he uses this word immediately, uh, which I, is used less than 100 times in all the Bible. They're just kind of pushing us along. And so in my, my exposition of Mark, I've tried to take bigger sections of Scripture than maybe I'm used to, than maybe um, you're used to. But I'm trying to get through Mark quickly is what we're doing. That's why we're, if you feel like we're going fast, that's why we are. It took four years to go through the Gospel of Matthew. And uh, Mark is going to take us just over a year. And so just really trying to get the whole glimpse of the, the life of Christ in. And then after that, somewhere after the New Year, we begin, uh, just to give you a heads up, um, planning to preach through the Psalms of Ascent. Psalms 120 through Psalm 134. Fifteen Psalms, just kind of right week after week, will be in the Old Testament. I'm really looking forward to that. been preparing for that, thinking about that as we um, go, go forward. But we're here in Mark chapter 12, and since Mark chapter 11, Jesus has been on the hot seat, being on the brunt end of questions from the religious leaders if they, as they have come, rapid fire, all trying to trap Jesus to destroy Him. In fact, it even says in chapter 11, verse 18, after Jesus cleansed the temple, it said, the chief priests and the scribes heard this, and they began seeking how to destroy Him, for they were afraid of Him, for the whole crowd was astonished at His teaching. They saw what Jesus did, how He cleansed the temple, and they are trying to destroy Him. And all these questions are really coming from that motive, which isn't anything new. Back in chapter 3, verse 6, you can turn back there if you want. This is really the, the first point where, where we see that the, the religious leaders were against Jesus. Chapter 3, verse 6, the Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against Him as to how they might destroy Him. The Herodians had the political power. So the religious people combining with the political people to try to gang up on Jesus and try to, try to destroy Him. And they're questioning Jesus. They first question Him. In fact, this isn't the only time which He even has explicit statement that says they're trying to destroy Jesus. Chapter 12, verse 13. And they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians sent in order to trap Him in a statement. So these questions are coming, not with pure motives, but they're coming to try to trap and destroy Jesus. The first question comes... Um, in chapter 11, talking about uh, authority. He says, what authority do you have in doing these things? Chapter 11, verse 28. By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do this? And so Jesus, rather than saying, well, my authority is from God, which they should have known, He just said, put it back on them. It's okay, John the Baptist, what authority did he have? Where did that come from? And they were afraid to, to say, from God. Right, And they're afraid to say just from the people, because the people considered him a prophet. So they said, we don't know. And so Jesus didn't answer them a question. The first trap averted. The second trap comes in, in chapter 12, verse 13, about the Pharisees and Herodians. The Herodians came along right with the political power. And, and they said, well, should we pay the poll tax or not? The, the tax that the, the Pharisees hated. And the Herodians are right there. So if he said, no, you shouldn't pay the tax, the governmental officials would get him. If they said, yes, pay the tax, the people would be against him. And Jesus said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God the things that are God's. And we looked at that last week, just our, our civil duty. And everything that's said there in verse 17 is really immense. And then, as we saw last week also, the Sadducees tried their hand at the question. They didn't believe in the resurrection. So they tried to put forth this case about how ridiculous the resurrection is, about this man who, this woman who married seven brothers and each of them who died. And they said, okay, in the resurrection, who's 
which one's wife should we be? All seven had her. What's going to happen? And then Jesus combated their question by a marvelous response. Were they tried to make him look foolish? Jesus responded and said, you're mistaken. You don't understand the, the power of God. You don't understand the Scriptures. There's no marriage in heaven. And they says, okay, I'll take the Scriptures which you do take, the Pentateuch. And, and quote from there, it says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the God, not I was the God. Meaning that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are, are alive and well, even though they lived hundreds of years before Moses came on the scene. Thereby demonstrating the resurrection is true. Well, well, that one didn't work, and so now we have round four. Ding, ding! Here it comes. Verse 28. One of the scribes came and heard them arguing, and recognizing that he had answered them well, asked him, What commandment is the foremost of all? And Jesus answered, The foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, Right, teacher, you have truly stated that He is one and there is no one else beside Him. And to love Him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that He had answered intelligently, He said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one would venture to ask Him any more questions. And Jesus began to say, as He taught in the temple, How is it that the scribes say that Christ is the Son of David? David himself said in the Holy Spirit, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So in what sense is he his son? And a large crowd enjoyed listening to him. Now, unlike our previous sections where the questions were, were more trivial in nature, were, were more just kind of talking about maybe esoteric things, trying to maybe, maybe get at some kind of um, trapment. This question is different. The, these questions in our text this morning are really good questions. In fact, I would say these questions here in our text are, are great questions. That's the title of my message this morning. Some great questions. I mean, these questions in our text have to do with the core things of our faith. right? The, the person of Christ. The duties of what God requires of us towards Him. The essence of our faith. How it is we ought to live. <coughs> So I just say, listen, we got some great questions here. So listen up. Listen up to what Jesus says. Well, one of the scribes, we see here verse 28, came and heard them arguing. And recognizing that he had answered them well, asked him, what commandment is the foremost of all? Now, really, there can be almost no greater question that one could ever ask than this question. Right? When you boil all things down, which commandment rises to the top? Which one has the most importance? Which one is first? Which one ought we pay most of our attention to? What's the most important of them all? And you know what? In many things in life, it's helpful to know what the most important thing is. If you're playing football, regardless of what you're doing, the most important thing to remember is that you want to take that ball and get it across the goal line. 
That's like the most important thing. That's the goal about everything you do. And remember that fact can help. Your basketball, you want to remember that the goal is to take that ball and put it through the hoop and to prevent your opponents from doing the same. That, I mean, that's what you want above all things. And you may not know all the rules. You may not know all the penalties. You may not have all the technique right. But if you just keep that goal in mind, you'll be on the right track to success. Or a business, right? What's the most important thing in business? To make sure that you bring in more money then you spend. Because if you bring in more money than you spend, you'll make a profit and your business will last and you'll have success. And you may not know how your product exactly made or how your sales staff gets all their contacts or how the shipping and receiving does their job or how accounting does their job. But if you know you need to turn a profit in business, that can help you kind of with a lot of decisions right on down the line. And so it is with a foremost commandment. Right When you know which commandment is on the focus and top of the list of what's important, and it helps you put all things in perspective. It also allows you to say, okay, you know what? If I know what the greatest commandment is, all I need to do is focus on that one commandment. All great people, successful people, are always focused people. There are few things they do, but the few things they do, they do very, very well. And so likewise with us, if we would know the greatest commandment and focus and do only that, God would be well satisfied. Well, we come here, the, the question, what commandment is the foremost of all? I do believe this was a trap. We do maybe get a sense that the scribe is coming with good motives and that he'd recognize that Jesus was answering well and maybe this was his chance. But it, it was a trap. The Jews had gone through, carefully cataloged all the different commands that they had seen in the Old Testament, they came up with 613 commands. About half of them were positive commands, maybe a little less than half of them, and a little more than half of them were negative commands, right? The positive commands, right? Honor your father and your mother. Or, if you meet your enemy's ox and his donkey is wandering away, surely you shall return it to him. There, there's a positive commandment. More than half were negative. Do not steal. Do not take a bribe. But the question is, of all these commandments, which is the foremost? And, and maybe the trap was this. Maybe Jesus would choose some kind of lesser commandment. Maybe the scribe would be able to demonstrate, well, that's one commandment, but you know what? I can top that with a better commandment for some reason. So, Jesus said, verse 29, the foremost is this, the protos, the first one, the, the chief one, the best one, the highest one is what Darren read for us. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Now, just again, what a wonderful response. Um, Jesus didn't signal out one commandment. He actually gave us two. But they're both two sides of a similar coin. The first commandment comes from Deuteronomy 6. The second one comes from Leviticus 19. The first is the famous Shema passage. Shema is the Hebrew word to listen or to hear. Shemer means he listens or he hears. Shema is the command. Listen up. Hear. Hear this, O Israel. Obey is even some of the implication of that. Obey this. Listen. And the Jews knew this command very well. They repeat it twice a day. Even today. If you go to a synagogue today, you more than likely hear the Shema 
repeated. It's like, like in main church services across our land, the Our Fathers repeated the Lord's Prayer. In, in Jewish circles, the, the Shema is like the Our Father. Repeated often. In fact, it's been repeated so often by Jewish people that I've kind of picked it up. It's not like I'm around a lot of Jewish people, but I've kind of picked it up and it's one of the few verses I've memorized in Hebrews, in Hebrew. Because I've just heard it so often. It goes like this, Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Chad. That's what it is. Shema Israel, listen Israel. Adonai, the Lord, Eloheinu, is our God. Adonai, Echad, the Lord is one. It's not like I've worked at that, it's just I've kind of been around and, and heard it enough. That begins with a call to Israel. Hero Israel, listen up, this is important. And then it talks about the, the covenant relationship that God had with Israel. He is our God. Hear Israel, the Lord is our God. And it speaks about the unity of God. The Lord is one. And then comes the command. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now in Deuteronomy 6, it just says heart, soul, and mind. But here Jesus adds strength because it certainly is in the flavor of everything. It just says, love God with all of your being, every fiber of your being, whether to your heart, the inner impulses that you have with every thought and emotion and feeling and desire. Love God from the inside. Love God with all your soul. That is, that is your inner being. Just in who you are. Just your, your spiritual being within. Love Him with all the spiritual energy that you have. Every ounce of it. And then love God with your mind. Right? Love God with your, with your thinking, with every thought, right? With, with every synapse of your brain. Let it be a, a love towards God directed sort of thought. And then with all your strength, I think it's the outer being, right? The, the body that we have, with all of our work and all of our effort and all of our labor, all let it be directed towards God in love. That's the greatest commandment. In other words, our love to God should be entire and complete. Nothing should hold us back from loving God entirely. This is 24-7, 365, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year, every day, all day, all out, completely, continually, absolutely. A 50% love for God doesn't satisfy. A 70% love for God doesn't satisfy this command. I mean, God calls us not to 95% love, not to 99.9% love of Him. He calls us to 100% love of God. Nothing but entire, full, complete, total love for God fulfills this command. It's the greatest of all commandments. I mean, you can easily see how all-encompassing this is. I mean, worship to God is an expression of this. Praying to God is an expression of this. Study, memorizing, meditating upon God's Word is an expression of this command. Giving to the Lord's work is an expression of this command. Spreading the, the fame of His name is an expression of this command. And, and, and so many of the commands that are directed Godward are, are fulfilled in this. So, like for instance, take the first half of the Ten Commandments, right? Do not worship any other gods, right? If you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you of course wouldn't make any, worship any other gods. Nor would you make any idols because God has got 100%. You don't have like 5% over here with the idol. God is everything. Or you wouldn't take the, misuse the name of the Lord your God. Because He's everything to you. Why, why would you, why would you blaspheme His name? The Sabbath would be made holy because there's nothing more that you want than to be with God's people. Well, you say, how can I live this way? I mean, how, how can that possibly be done? Well, 
let me give you a, a little bit of counsel. It all surrounded by Deuteronomy chapter 6. There are some, some clues there. The verse right after this says this, These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. If you want to love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, make sure that His words are on your heart. You can't love a God you don't know. So you've you got to know God. And the more I have found this, the more people are into the Bible and reading and studying and memorizing and thinking and praying and talking, the more they love God. It just, it just, meaning it, it just flushes out that way. It just works out that way. Now that, that doesn't say, hey, well, all these things I have learned. No, it's to say that today, what are you reading today? What, what are you thinking on today? What are you, what are you memorizing today? What are you, what's, what, what are you catching on the scriptures today? That sort of person where the knowledge of God isn't stale. So I encourage you to take the words which God tells us and let it be on your heart. And then talk about it. Let it dwell on you. Think about it. Meditate it. And saturate your life with the Word of God. In fact, it says here in verse 7, You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. And, and, and this almost kind of like overflows. If you're loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, it's going to be in your mind. And what are you going to talk about? You're going to talk about those things and it's just wherever you are. It's not just a formal sit-down classroom kind of deal. It's just going to be getting out. So, so put the Word of God in you and get the Word of God out of you is one of the secrets of loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We'll, we'll come back to that command. But let, let's, let's look at the second command He gave us. Right here, Deuteronomy 9, I'm sorry, Leviticus 19. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The first commandment is a vertical love towards God and the second commandment is a horizontal love towards others. In other words, right? It tells us how to behave towards others. And how ought we to love others? Well, just look at how you love yourself. The first command Jesus gave was exhaustive in the sense that all of our being, and the second command is exhaustive, but in a different way. Rather than telling us with all these superlatives of everything, right? He uses a comparison as. Love your neighbor as, right? A simile. Comparison. Ask yourself. And the assumption here is that you love yourself. The assumption here is that you love yourself a lot. And I know that every single one of you love yourselves a lot. Because you take great pains to take care of yourself. When you hunger, you eat. When you thirst, you drink. When you itch, you scratch. Now, let's see if I can do this. Hey kids, is your ear just kind of there's something on your ear that just oh that feels so good. Right, I think some of you kids, your ear itching, right? Olivia, your ear itching. Ophelia, I mean, your ear itching. No, maybe your nose is starting to itch. Yep, yep. I got Colin back there. Yep, Jared, I got him itching. Yeah, I got Andrew right here. Right. How about how about your head? Your head scratch a little bit, right? Oh, 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 you got me. <laughs> you're itching there. If you itch, you'll scratch. When you're tired, you'll sleep. When you're cold, you put a coat on. When you're hot, you'll shed your clothes. When you're injured, you'll care for your injury. When you desire, you'll pursue. When you want, you'll work hard. When you can't have, you'll fight and quarrel to get what you want. As Paul said, Ephesians 5.29, No one ever hated his own flesh, but nurses it and cherishes it. 
We just cherish our flesh. And, and the comparison now comes to this. To the extent that you care for your own bodies, then you care for other people in the same way. And any lack is a violation of this command. So if your neighbor's hungry, you go fix him something to eat and provide him with food. If your neighbor's thirsty, get up, get a drink to him, bring it to him. If your neighbor's cold, give him a coat. If your neighbor's hot, chase down a fan, plug it in, blow it on your neighbor. If your neighbor's hurt, tend to his wounds. That's the extent of the command. And, and, and nothing... And anything less than that is not obedience to this command. And like the first command, this works itself out in every other command that's given on a horizontal realm. You show me a command, and I'll show you how it's all motivated by love. So, for instance, right, the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and your mother. Right? You will honor those whom you love. And who do you love more than your parents? At least early on in life. Do not murder. Of course, you're not going to murder those you love because right, you're not going to murder yourself. You, you want to care for yourself, right? So care for them. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Love will remain faithful to marriage vows. Don't steal. Love will respect private property of others because you want your private property expected, respected. Don't bear false witness. You want others to speak truth. You don't want lies to be spread about you, so don't you spread lies either. Don't covet. Covet is wanting. It's a form of stealing. And you don't want others to covet and want and take what you have. So what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Both these commands, with all of our being, they're superlative. We have an obligation to love to the maximum. And that's why Jesus said in verse 31 here, there's no other commandment greater than these. In Matthew's account of the same text, Matthew records Jesus saying, which he probably said also, on these commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Or all the law and the prophets hang on these two. Just like what I've been saying, right? Every commandment, the law and the prophets, expression of love to God or love towards the neighbor. Well, that was the answer that Jesus gave his question. See the response to the scribe. Right, teacher. I think he had this one in his bag. I think he was ready to, to show that, um, that this is the greatest commandment. Because if Jesus showed anything else, I think He was going to say, no, no, I think love is greater. And I think that's what the point is of this right. You have truly stated that He is one and there's no one else beside Him. And to love Him with all your heart and with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now, apparently Jesus passed the test from this man's perspective. The scribe affirmed Jesus in his answer. And I think the scribe knew that this was the greatest commandment. Um, you know, around the time of Jesus, people knew the priority of these commandments. I mean, part, that's why the Shema was repeated so often, is because it was so important. It was so supreme. And the command to love your neighbor was known very well as well. In fact, even a, a decade before this question was asked of Jesus, there was a, a rabbi. His name was Rabbi Hillel. And a Gentile came up to him, saw all the laws and commandments in the Bible. He said, oh, it's so confusing. I tell you what, you, Rabbi Hillel, you, you stand on one leg and you teach me everything that there is to know about the law. And so he only had a little bit of time and Rabbi Hillel stood on his leg. I'd quote it, but I haven't memorized it yet. He says, what is hateful to you, do not do to anyone else. This is the whole law. All the rest is commentary. 
That was very well known at the time of Jesus. What is hurtful, hateful to you, do not do to anyone else. This is the whole law. All the rest is commentary, right? On these two commandments hang the whole law and the prophets. Now, His commandment was in the negative. Okay, what's hurtful or hateful to you, don't do. And Jesus said, love as you would have others love you or love as you love yourself. But the spirit is still the same, right? The, the evaluation, how do I love myself? Let's, I must extend that to others. That is the law. Everything else is commentary. And so he got it right. And I think that's what he's looking for. And he even added one more thing there. It's more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Loving God and your neighbor is better than offerings and sacrifices. Now, this man was a student of the Bible. And he knew that there are places in the Bible that, that place love and mercy and loving kindness and, and grace higher than sacrifice. And so I think he was waiting for Jesus to say, oh, what's the grace commandment, right? You need to sacrifice for your sin. He say, oh, aren't there places though that say to love is better than sacrifice? Hosea 6.6, 6, I desire loving kindness or mercy or faithfulness rather than sacrifices. 1 Samuel 15.22, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. Obedience is better than sacrifice, God says. Because I want the heart, I want the, I want the action more than I want just the sacrifice. Or Psalm 51, after David sinned with Bathsheba, he confessed his sin. And right there, he could have said, well, I just offer a sacrifice and there's my sacrifice to you, God. You're, you're content. And he said this, For you, O Lord, do not delight in sacrifices, otherwise I'd give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And regarding sacrifice, there are times in the Old Testament when heart religion was lifted high above sacrificial religion. Loyalty, loving kindness, obedience, broken hearts. These are the sorts of things that the Bible says are better than sacrifices. They're expressions of love towards God Expressions of love towards other people. And it makes sense then that loving God and your neighbor is much better than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. what verse 33 says. And this thought has actually helped Jews for thousands of years. You think about the Jews today. Where are their sacrifices? They're not. Now, when did their sacrifices stop? Does anyone remember when their sacrifices stopped? 70 A.D., right? When the Romans came and they destroyed the temple. And with the destruction of the temple came the destruction of the altar and everything was wiped away as we'll see in chapter 13 of Mark when no stone was left unturned of the temple. And, and, and they, didn't, they didn't have any other place. And so, a big dilemma in the early Jewish religion right after A.D. 70 was, what are we going to do about the sacrifices? We can't sacrifice anymore. What about Yom Kippur when we're supposed to sacrifice for our sins? How is God going to receive us? Lo and behold, the rabbi comes to the rescue. Rabbi Yohanan. Rabbi Jonathan, if you will. When he was asked about it, this came, right? He lived before the destruction of the temple, after the destruction of the temple. And he was asked after the destruction of the temple, like, well, what about the sacrifices? And he said, well, Hosea 6.6, 6, I desire mercy rather than sacrifice. And he said, we can show mercy now instead of sacrifice because we can't sacrifice any longer. And that, by the way, has paved the way for Jews even to today. Hosea 6.6, 6, I desire mercy 
not sacrifice. So that was well known back then. It's even well known today about what is most important. And Jesus then comments on this man's statement. When he said, right, Jesus? Jesus said, when he saw that he answered intelligently, meaning that he answered exactly right, he got it. He said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Now, on the one hand, I mean, that's tremendously encouraging. That all these Pharisees and Sadducees and Herodians like way farther. Jesus on one end, they're on the other hand, they're fighting. And, and Jesus says to this man, you, you answered well, good job, I approve your answer. But in the way that things are said here, it, it is a rebuke as well. I mean, think about what he said when he said, you are not far from the kingdom. He said, okay, you did good, but you're not there yet. You, you got a ways to go. You, you, you're in the right direction. Keep going. I, I think you're going to ride, right? You ever do that with kids, right? We play hot and cold, right? You go and hide something, and, and when uh, someone goes looking for it, you, if you're going this way and it's hidden over there, you say, cold, 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 and then you turn around and you say, okay, you're getting warmer, getting warmer. Oh, now you're getting colder. Oh, you're getting warmer. Oh, you're boiling hot. You're getting hot. You're right there. You know what Jesus is saying? You're getting hot. You're boiling. You're almost there. You're not there yet, but you're almost, you're almost there. So in some sense, you've got to say, well, how, how do you get in? And I, I just say this. As great as this question is, and as great as the answer is, this is not the way to get into the kingdom of God. Hear this, please, church family. This is not the way to get into the kingdom of God because loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving your neighbor as yourself is not good news. That's not good news. And you've got to be convinced it's, not, it's a great commandment, but it's not good news. In fact, when you start thinking about these commandments, and maybe as I pressed you to 24-7, 365, maybe you kind of felt like, oh, I'm not doing that. Or maybe you felt like loving your neighbors yourself. Maybe you thought like, oh, I'm not doing that. And that's the point. Right through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And the, the greatest sin is sin against the greatest commandment. And if the greatest commandment is to love the Lord our God totally and absolutely, any failure in that means that we are the greatest of sinners. That's not good news. That sets the bar so high that we, we are really hopeless to ever obtain that sort of love. And I hope you see there's no way we'll ever be able to live this high. You say, well, how do I get into the kingdom of God? Let, let me answer this question by way of contrast. In light of um, a potential Mormon president, I've been reading about Mormonism. Picked up some free Kindle e-books um, just recently. One was called Out of Mormonism, which basically gave a testimony of someone who's in Mormonism and then got out. Uh, another one's called Mormonism 101, which has to do with the doctrine of Mormonism. Kind of learned all about Joseph Smith and everything that they believe about the afterlife. And, and uh, the one I'm, I'm most of the way through, it's called I Love Mormons by David Rowe. A new way to share Christ with Latter-day Saints. It's more of an evangelistic, how, how, do you, how do you approach Romans? What I appreciate about this book is that he, he says, you start telling them all that's wrong about their doctrine, you just turn them off. Right? Rather, see that there's, there's some good there and love them and genuinely engage them with Christ because... These people need freedom and they're, they have so much bondage with all the, the burdens that they have. And because 
in really in the Mormon theology, it's you got to try and try and try and try and try to live perfectly. Didn't Jesus say, Matthew 5:48, "Be perfect as my heavenly Father is perfect." And and within Mormonism, there is this shell which is very attractive. I mean, they take care of people on the outside; they look pristine, clean. They are nice, moral, wonderful people. And, and yet, there's a reason why they're so nice on the outside, is because that's their religion to be nice. But but all these things are just burdened upon them, burdened upon them. And, and this man, David Rowe, gives several testimonies about how people eventually, of all the burdens, eventually crumble. Listen to what he says. He describes this professor, and I, I don't know exactly where this He might be a professor at, in Utah, um, an LDS professor. He talked about his, the day his wife crumbled and just trying to restore her from all these burdens of everything she has to do to have a pristine family, of a pristine house, to make sure she researches her genealogy, to make sure she does all these things to look good. And then, so here's, here's his counsel to his wife who's, who's like crumbling under the weight of all the requirements that Roman, Mormon doctrine has. He says this, Once a man's daughter wanted to buy a bicycle, but it was far too pricey for her little hands to afford And so he had told his daughter that if she diligently saved all the money she could and put it towards the purchase, well, then he would pay the rest. In other words, if she did all that she could do, he would do what she couldn't do. And similarly, the Mormon Gospel claims that Christ's atonement covers what we can't if we cover what we can. The what we can part means in Mormon spirituality trying to keep the commandments as much as possible with a good attitude. The classic LDS support for this view comes from the Book of Mormon statement, 2 Nephi 25, verse 23. It is by grace that we are saved after all that we do. This give it your all to get God's grace message really amounts to a gospel of conditional grace. God's grace in Jesus Christ only comes to us on the condition that we are trying our hardest. In the end, this gospel makes God's acceptance contingent on our performance. While this may sound nice and comforting up front and on the surface, it simply boils down to another performance-driven system. Frankly, while promising the moon, or at least a shiny new bicycle, it only delivers more bricks upon the back. See, the good news isn't try harder. The good news isn't love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The good news isn't love your neighbor as yourself. The good news is that the work is done and Jesus did that for you on your behalf. Jesus accomplished this. Jesus loved the Lord as God, the Lord our God, with all of His heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Jesus loved His neighbor as Himself. Yes, Jesus lived perfectly and never sinned. But even though He never sinned, He was put to death on a cross as a criminal. But the good news is this, is that His death was in our place. And He died that we might live. And as we believe and trust His work upon the cross, we are made holy. I mean, this is grace, right? We believe and God gives us righteousness. As Abraham, it says in Genesis 15, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham put a trust in God and God came down and and turned and used that trust and then gave him righteousness in his place. 
because of what Christ did on the cross. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus became our sin that we might get His righteousness. And so through faith in Him, we are loving the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's how God treats us. That's why we can stand in full confidence knowing there's no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Because it's all done in Jesus our faith and trust in Him is what wipes it all. That, that's the Gospel. That is real grace. It's not conditional. And when God gives that forgiveness, our heart is bent towards Him then in love. Right? When God grants that forgiveness, when God grants that righteousness, when God grants that grace, then we turn to Him in love for all that He's done for us. We love God and we love others. Not meritorious to be accepted by God, but as an expression of our, of our faith in Him. That's why Jesus said about this man, you are not far from the kingdom of God. You, you're realizing what, what it looks like to be redeemed, but you're not yet redeemed. Now, what about you? As I look out upon you here this day, are you close to the kingdom of God? Maybe you, you've got the performance treadmill thing going on. Trying to do whatever you can to please the Lord in hopes that He'll be gracious. Right? And maybe there's, there's a lot of good things in your life. You've got a lot of good stuff going on. At least you've been on the outside, right? You're, you're reading your Bible and you're praying and you're attending church and you're at some fellowship. You're even reading the book Radical, right? You're, you're going through this, trying to, trying to do everything. But maybe all that's happening is you're, you're stacking more and more burdens on yourself trying to be good enough so as to be accepted by God with His conditional grace. If that's you, you're not in the kingdom yet. You may be close because you, you see what, what a godly life looks like. But unless you're trusting Jesus above all, unless you get grace right, you've missed grace. Unless you get the work of Christ right, you're just going to have burdens on your back. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And it's by faith and response to this that we love God and love our neighbors. Our fighter verse this week, 1 Peter 2.24, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross so we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Jesus died, bore our sins there so that we can live to righteousness. We don't live to righteousness so that conditional grace, His sacrifice applies to us. It's He bore our sins and that's why we, we live. See, love to God and love to neighbors are fruits of faith. They're not merits for approval. And you've got to get that right. This is, this is the watershed of all religions in the world. There's, there's Christianity on one side, and then there's works religions on the other side. Christianity says you just believe and trust in Jesus, and you are made righteous. And that, by the way, then generates a genuine righteousness towards God and a love towards God and a love towards neighbor that's unmatched. But on, on the other side, there is, well, you work, you've got to do, or you've got to sacrifice, you've got to do this, or you've got to do that, or you've got to be pristine, or, or you, whatever, even paganism, right? You pray to your gods and they give back to you, right? You do and God gives. You do and then God gives. You do and you obedient and God gives. And, and the message of the Gospel is totally different. It says God has done, we believe, and He abundantly gives. And of course, then we respond. And the responding shows you truly believe. But it's, don't miss that. I mean, that is, that is the continental divide between Christianity and all other religions. I, I, I've 
heard it said many times before that you either have the religion of human achievement, well, everything we do, or you have the religion of divine accomplishment, what God has done. I thought you'd know that quote. All right, well, let's, let's reflect on that. That would be good for the Lord's Supper, but we've got three more verses to go through. 35, 34, 35, 36, 37, I guess. Well, after this answer to Jesus, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. They saw how intelligent he was. They saw how wise he was, how tactful he was. And they're just kind of done. And they're not going to ask him any more questions and they're going to kill him instead. But Jesus, sensing the silence maybe, they said, okay, if you're done, let me start up. And... Verse 35, Jesus began to say as he taught in the temple. Here's what Jesus said. How is it that the scribes say that Christ, the Christ is the son of David? David himself said, in the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies beneath your feet. David, calls him, David himself calls him Lord. So in what sense is he his son? Now, if you look carefully, there are two questions here in the text. Verse 35 and 37. And sandwiched between those two is an Old Testament quote. And as you dig into it further, you find out that the question in verse 35 is the same question that took place in verse 37. Verse 35 says this way, How is the Christ the Son of David? And verse 37 says, In what sense is the Messiah His Son? Right? One's maybe from David. How's this David. How is David's son the Messiah? And then the other is, how is, David's, how is uh, the Messiah David's son? Same question. But he asks the question first, he frames some biblical data, and then he gives us the question again. In what sense is he his son? Alright, so let's, let's work through these. Here it is. Jesus asks the question, How is it the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? Now, there was no doubt the scribes said that. No doubt the Scriptures taught this. The Messiah would come from the line of David. We could read 2 Samuel chapter 7 when God said to David that he will build, his son will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. He said, God said to David, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne will be established forever. That is, the throne of David will be a forever established throne. It's going to live forever. The, the son of David is going to have a forever throne. There's some question about, well, is it talking about Solomon or is it talking about others? If you look into the passage, there's a sense where Solomon fulfilled the passage of 2 Samuel 7, but in a sense he didn't. It ultimately pointing towards the, the Messiah was the son of David for sure. Of course, Christ is the son of David. Or Psalm 89 is all about the Davidic covenant. God's promise to David to have a, a son sit on the, on the throne. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your seed forever and build upon your throne to all generations. My loving kindness I will keep for him, that's David, forever, and my covenant will be confirmed to him. So I will establish his descendants forever and his throne as the days of heaven. Once I've sworn to my holiness, I will not lie to David. His descendants shall endure forever and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon. And the witness of the sky, and the witness in the sky is faithful. He's just saying this that 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 as long as sun and moon are there, David's going to be son of David's going to sit on the throne. 
Right? And there's two ways for that to be fulfilled. Either, either David's going to have continual son after continual son after continual son that will live forever, but the, the Davidic kingdom has kind of been crushed and taken down. Or he can have one who's going to live and reign forever. And that, of course, is Jesus who is living and reigning forever. And, of course, the Christ is David's son. Or Isaiah 9. For unto us a child will be born, a son is given, and the government rests upon his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, and on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness. And there will be no end in increase to his government or of peace. The message is clear, right? That the son of David will sit upon the messianic throne to rule and reign forever. Scribes knew that well. You remember the Christmas story? Right when the Magi from Persia came, they came from the east, probably Zoroastrians, right, in seek of the one true God, seeking the one true God. They saw this miraculous star, they followed it, came to Jerusalem, came into town, didn't know much about the Hebrew Scriptures, said, where is the king of the Jews to be born? And Herod said, I don't know, ask the scribes. And where did the scribes say? He's to be born in Bethlehem, right? Why? Because Bethlehem is the city of, of David. And in fact, when Luke tells his story and narrative birth of Jesus. Twice is Bethlehem identified as the city of David. Bethlehem was identified with David, this, this miraculous, this wonderful king. I mean, we have buildings named after people. We name streets after people. Rarely do we name cities after people. But if someone is big enough, they can have a city after them. The person is great enough, the city is small enough to be able to do that. It's the case of David and Bethlehem. It's a little bit like Dixon, Illinois. Dixon hasn't renamed themselves yet, right? Reagan, Illinois. They've not done that yet, but Ronald Reagan looms large in Dixon, right? You drive into town. Welcome to Dixon, the hometown of Ronald Reagan. You can visit it today. There's visitor centers all over the place. There's statues. There's Reagan Trail Days. You know, everything's about Reagan there in that town because they're proud of it, and, and rightly so. Well, so Bethlehem had a similar st- sediment. They were small. Micah 6, 5, they even prophesied of David being born in Bethlehem was small. But they said, we are the city of David. We are where David comes from. Okay. Well, that's fine. Of course, verse 35, everyone knows that the Christ is the son of David. That's easy, right? So where's the rub? What's the question? Why is that so hard? I mean, how is it that the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? Well, you can go to 2 Samuel 7, you can go to Psalm 89, you can go to Isaiah chapter 9, you can go other places. And then he adds the rub. Verse 36. It's a quote from Psalm 110. I want you to take your Bible and turn to Psalm 110. This is, this is important. Psalm 110 is quoted more times in um, the New Testament than any other psalm. It would do you well to know this psalm very, very well. Psalm 110 says... The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That's what was quoted there in Mark. So we got three people here in verse 1. We have the author. And who's the author of Psalm 110? So David. It says right there in the superscription, right? A Psalm of David. Okay? And so we have the Lord. Who's that? Well, that's the Lord. He says to my Lord. And who's my Lord? Well, that's the Lord. All right, we'll, we'll get to that. Um, this is for those of you who don't know. I know many of you know this, but for the sake of those who don't, look at, look at the difference between the first Lord and the second Lord. 
Kids, do any of you see a difference there? Are you looking at Psalm 110? Maybe you're not. Maybe you're looking at your children's notes. What's the difference between those two lords? Yes, KB? Yeah, one is emphasized. It's emphasized by being in all capital letters there, right? The Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That one's emphasized, if you will. <clears throat> says to my Lord, capital L, lowercase o, lowercase r, lowercase d. Now, throughout the Old Testament, that's not a typo. That's not an accident. Whenever you see Lord like that in all capital letters, it means he's referring to the Lord. It means he's referring to Yahweh. That's what this word means. It means Yahweh. You might say it this way. Yahweh says to my Adonai. These are two different words. The first one is the name of the covenant-keeping God. Jehovah is what sometimes people say. And then the second Lord is just the common word for Lord. Kurios. He's, he's the Lord. He's the Adonai. And so here's what you got. You got David writing, and it's the Lord. Who, now, now, Yahweh is actually like God's name. Like my name is Steve. God's name is Yahweh. It comes from the, the verb to be. It, you might translate it being, or the I am, or the, the, the being one. I mean, it's just trying to put forth there that He is the, the sovereign Lord, the being of all life. But Lord is the one who's the, the, um, <clears throat> the one who's looked to, who's bow down to. So, David's writing and he's saying, Jehovah God is saying to my Lord. Now you say, well, who is my Lord? Who's he talking about here? <clears throat> what? I heard it. Right? Jesus. He's talking about the Messiah, particularly. He's talking about the one who will, verse 1, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. He's the one, verse 2, who's going to rule in the midst of your enemies. Right? He's the one, verse 6, who's going to judge among the nations and fill them with corpses. And, and He's the one who's going to rule in verse 5, shatter kings. This is the Messiah. So, we've got the Lord God talking to the Messiah. That's what's happening in Psalm 110. Alright, we could dig into that more, but for the sake of time, that's, that's all we're, we're going to do. But let's just think about this, of what's happening. And all the rabbis taught at this time that... This is what's taking place. God is speaking to the Messiah. So now look at how David describes the Messiah. He calls Him my Lord. A title of superiority. You bow down to lords. What a Lord tells you to do, you do. And that's the point. David is saying, I am submitting to my Lord. I am submitting to my Messiah. Now you can understand Jesus' question. Go back to Mark chapter 12. This is the rub. This is the big deal. Come to verse 37. David himself calls him Lord. In what sense is he his son? Obviously, the Messiah is greater than David because David called the Messiah Lord. But who is the Messiah? He comes from the line of David. If he comes from the line of David, that means he is inferior to David. But he's not, because he's the Lord. How, how, how can that be? Sons aren't superior to their fathers. Is the father has authority over to the sons and the grandsons and their great-grandsons? How can the same person be at both time above and below? How can the, the, the same person be both, both Lord and Son? 
both sovereign and subject. Both on the level with God and above man, and on the other hand, lower than man. Christmas. The Incarnation. Emmanuel. God with us. The Incarnation. When God became flesh. Because the Messiah is obviously greater than, greater than David himself. I believe in Psalm 110, this is a, a Trinitarian conversation before the Incarnation. And the only way you can harmonize Psalm 110 and the, it, the indisputable fact that the Messiah would come from the line of David is if God took on human form and became our Messiah. When David wrote, the Lord said to my Lord, it was two persons of the Trinity just, just talking with each other about what would take place. In order to get that kingdom, the Adonai had to be Messiah. And as Messiah, then He'd rule and reign and be the, the sovereign one. He had to come down to earth in the form of a man, come down to earth in the form of a baby. And you start thinking about that and you start going, whoa, that's pretty deep. That's pretty, that, that's amazing. And it's no wonder then the large crowd enjoyed listening to Him because they never thought about the implications of that which is really clear in the psalm. A large crowd enjoyed it. Enjoyable thinking about these things. The mystery of the, the Godhead that you'll, you'll, never, you'll never crack. You'll never get deep into that. But it is amazing that Scripture just lays that out perfectly for us. The crowds enjoyed it, but not the religious leaders. They were threatened. They wanted to trap Him. They wanted to kill Him. And that, by the way, is, is, is exactly what's going to happen. They, they didn't ask Him any more questions. They're going to see, if you look over in chapter 14, verse 1, the... the the Passover and the unleavened bread were right there. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth and how to how to kill him. And eventually they are going to. They hated the message that Jesus brought. That you know, here I am the son of David, but I'm I'm bigger than what you think. I am. And I'm a servant. I'm God in the flesh. And they hated that. That message is what got, got Jesus killed. And yet, in an ironically way, His death then becomes our life. And, and that's, that's exactly what Jesus talks about in the Lord's Supper. Turn over to 1 Corinthians 11 where it speaks about the Lord's Supper. Right? When, when Jesus took the bread at that Seder meal, after He given thanks, He broke it and He said, this is My body, which is for you. Do this remembrance of Me. I, I'm going to be crushed. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be poured out. But this is for you. My death becomes your life. To be saved from sins, it's not an animal sacrifice that could do. The blood of bulls and goats can never take away sins. Hebrews 10.4 An angelic sacrifice wouldn't make sense because one had to come down and identify with us as a man. It's only, it's only a man, the God-man Himself. It was just another human being, right? Nobody could be sacrificed for it. We needed God Himself to come and be sacrificed for us to satisfy His own righteous requirements of the law. And that's what Jesus was saying. This is My body for you. And this cup, right, is the blood. This is the cup of the new covenant which is being poured out. And, and as I go upon the cross and bleed, I'm bleeding for you. It's the new covenant is coming to you. So with those thoughts in mind, it would be good for us to celebrate the, the Lord's Supper here this morning, right? What The greatest commandment isn't the Gospel. It shows how we live after believing the Gospel. And here, the wonders of the cross of Christ, the God, God becoming human form.
to die for us. Let's bow our heads. I just want you to deal with yourself before the Lord. Examine your own heart. Confess your sin. Confess. I mean, there's lots of sin to confess today, right? How we haven't lived totally for God. How we haven't loved totally as we love ourselves. And the idea here isn't that, oh God, well, I failed to do that, but I'll, I'll keep it better. The idea here is, you know what? I'm bankrupt, oh Lord. I, I, I can't do that. Maybe you can think of some specific ways even about how you have not been able to do that. The cross of Christ is for those who can't live perfectly. It's for us. It is, it is the good news. But God wants us to know that and believe that and trust that and respond in the right way. So, if you've not trusted Christ, if you're still on this human achievement path, that's not what the Lord's Supper is about. As we pass the bread and drink the cup, don't, don't drink from it. This is for those who have trusted in Jesus alone and have given a heart, a new heart, a, a regenerated being that is new that longs to then live for Him. Weak as we are. It's a cry for help. It's a cry of faith. So God, I pray that You would visit us now as we think about um, Christ and crucified, as we think about the bread that He broke and the, the wine that He shared. I pray, O oh Lord, that these, these things would be on our hearts and, and be on our minds. That You would cause us even now to reflect upon the life of Jesus. Commune with us, O Lord, we pray. Help us to see Christ in a new and fresh way that everything we have could not atone for our sin, but it was only done at the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. May we eat of this food thankfully, reflecting upon all that Christ has done for our souls. Amen.